What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Between the shadows of reality and the fringe of our own fears lurks a world of monsters. Strange creatures and frightening phantoms who test the very boundaries of our science and superstition. It's a realm of mystery and legend, a place of fact and fear. This is Monstro Bizarro. monster. The headline jumped from the pages of the Texarkana Gazette newspaper on May 3rd, 1971. I felt a hairy arm come over my shoulder and the next thing I knew we were on the ground. The thing was breathing real hard and its eyes were about the size of a half dollar and real red. I finally broke away and ran around the house. I was moving so fast, I didn't stop to open the door. I just ran through it. This was the exact statement of Bobby Ford, a 25-year-old man who had been visiting family members at their home 10 miles south of Texarkana, Arkansas, in the small town of Falk. Just hours before, in the early morning hours of Sunday, May 3rd, he had been attacked by an unidentified creature outside the home. Bobby Ford was rushed to St. Michael's Hospital in Texarkana, where he was treated for injuries and mental shock before being released. Bobby's sister-in-law, Patricia, told Gazette reporter Jim Powell, We've lived here only about five days, and I think we're going to move. That thing has been to the house three times now. The creature was described by the Fords as a large, bulky animal about seven feet tall and about three feet wide across the chest. He was covered in hair and ran upright on two legs at a very fast pace. They were confident it wasn't a bear. And it wasn't a man. Bobby Ford, along with his brother Don Ford and friend Charles Taylor, saw the creature several times shortly after midnight and shot at it seven times with a shotgun. Shh, I think I hear something. When it first started Wednesday, our wives heard something walking around on the porch. Then Friday night about midnight, the thing tried to break into the house. Don Ford explained. Whatever this thing was, it seemed dangerous and intent on getting inside the house. It was like nothing these folks had ever seen before or even dreamed of. A hairy, ape-like animal that could run upright on two legs like a human. It was altogether frightening and unexplainable. 
Ford and Taylor families could not have known is that their harrowing tale, made public by the region's most respected newspapers, would launch a legend to everlasting worldwide fame. A legend and a creature that would become known as the Boggy Creek Monster, the Beast of Boggy Creek. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Lyle Blackburn, and this episode is a big one. The subject is one that I've researched in depth for nearly 15 years as I've shared the extraordinary facts in multiple books, documentary films, and on television. This is the story of the Falk Monster, or the Boggy Creek Monster as many have called it. A story of a frightening creature and the blockbuster movie it inspired. The movie, The Legend of Boggy Creek, helped make the creature famous far beyond the backwoods of Arkansas and has made it a focal point within Southern Bigfoot lore. The quotes you heard, reenacted at the outset of this episode, were taken word for word from the Texarkana Gazette newspaper article that was published May 3, 1971. The article, written by journalist Jim Powell, documented the incredible story of the Ford and Taylor families who had been living in Falk for less than a week when they began to be terrorized by some shadowy entity. The families were made up of Don and Patricia Ford and their four children, and Charles and Elizabeth Taylor. The men had come to the area for work. They were joined later by Don's younger brother Bobby Ford and his friend Corky Hill. According to the Fords, it all started on the night of Wednesday, April 28th, when they heard something moving around outside the home. They could hear the sound of footsteps creaking on the old boards of the porch. The house was a simple frame structure with a covered porch on the front side and wood surrounding the perimeter. The Fords and Taylors were not sure who or what was, quote, fooling around the house, but it was enough to send them fleeing to the closest neighbor's home. Two days later, on Friday, May 1st, Bobby Ford and Corky Hill arrived at the home. They planned to stay the weekend and do some fishing at a nearby creek. When they got to the creek, they were startled to find a strange-looking footprint pressed into the mud along the bank. It was long and human-like, yet only had three toes. The creepy-looking track, along with the rather ominous atmosphere of the woods, made them so nervous they abandoned the idea of fishing and headed straight back to the house. Later that night, the mysterious visitor returned. It crept around on the porch at one point and tried to get in the back door. The following night, Saturday, May 2nd, Bobby was using the bathroom when the thing suddenly appeared at the window. He immediately abandoned his business and ran into the living room. Elizabeth Taylor was sitting on the couch in the living room when she saw the curtain moving in an open window. Suddenly, a hairy, clawed hand came through the opening. The eyes of the thing flashed briefly, reflecting in the glow of the interior light. When Don and Charles became aware of the situation, they grabbed a flashlight and a shotgun and rushed out the front door. Bobby followed close behind. 
The three men saw a large, hairy animal run toward the back of the house. They estimated it was about seven feet tall and was running upright the entire time. The frightened family called Constable Ernest Walraven and told him of the situation. Walraven came to investigate, but by the time he arrived, the creature, or whatever it was, was nowhere to be seen. After the constable left, the thing returned, this time trying to kick in the back door as the Ford's small dog barked furiously. The men responded quickly, illuminating it with a flashlight while firing at it with the shotguns. The thing fled towards the woods, again running on two legs. We shot again and thought we saw it fall. Bobby Charles and myself started walking to where we saw it, Don Ford said. As the three men walked towards the woods to look for the body, they heard the women in the house begin screaming. Bobby turned and headed back to check on them while Don and Charles continued ahead. As Bobby was approaching the porch, something leapt from the shadows and grabbed him. According to Bobby, I was walking the rungs of a ladder to get up on the porch when the thing grabbed me. The only thing I could think about was to get out of there. I finally broke away and ran around the house and through the front door. I don't know where he went. When Don and Charles heard Bobby shouting, they turned and ran towards the porch. By the time they got there, however, the red-eyed creature had fled into the woods and Bobby was already in the house. He hadn't completely broken through the front door, but his arm had gone through the glass. Bobby was injured, shocked, and, as Patricia put it, out of his head. The family loaded Bobby into their car and rushed to Constable Walraven's house. He immediately sent them on to the hospital in Texarkana while he drove to the Ford's home to investigate. Walraven remained there until approximately 5 a.m., but the creature did not return. After sunrise, more Miller County police officials arrived at the Ford house, including then-Deputy H.L. Phillips. During the investigation, the lawmen found pieces of metal around the bottom of the house that had been ripped away. They also noted window damage and scratches on the front porch. Curious tracks could be seen in the dirt around the house, which may have been left by the creature. Whatever it was, it appeared to have three toes. Reporters also showed up at the scene. One of these was Dave Hall, news director for Texarkana's KTFS radio station. He had been tipped off by one of the doctors at St. Michael's. Hall, in turn, called his friend Jim Powell, a journalist at the Texarkana Gazette, and suggested they drive to the home to check it out for themselves. When the two reporters arrived, they found the Fords in a state of frenzy. They were packing their belongings into a U-Haul in a tremendous hurry. Powell and Hall proceeded to search the immediate area for evidence along with the police. There was a freshly plowed field behind the house, so the men looked for tracks where the Fords said they had seen glowing eyes. In an interview, Dave Hall told me, footprints and small saplings broken off. 
We never saw any blood, although the people said they fired several shots and thought they hit it. The Ford House was slowly becoming the scene of a mob as onlookers were beginning to gather and even take it upon themselves to join the search for the monster. They quickly trampled any potential track evidence, which was probably minimal anyway since it had rained earlier that morning. The authorities theorized the intruder might have been a panther, i.e. a cougar, since there was evidence that something may have been living under the house. Faint tracks found near the porch seemed to be those of a panther. Rumors circulated that the perpetrator could also have been a horse. Several sources agreed that an old horse had been seen lumbering around the area where the house was located. However, no hoof prints were found anywhere near the scene, not to mention at least five adults had all seen something, which they described as being tall, hairy, and running on two legs, and horses certainly do not have hairy hands and red eyes. Other vague rumors suggested it was local citizens and even police officials perpetrating a hoax in an attempt to get the families to leave Falk. Deputy H.L. Phillips, who later became sheriff, dismissed the rumor as unfounded. I spoke to him at length about this case. The resulting newspaper article brought big attention to the small town of Falk that would forever change it. And when I say small, Falk is surely the definition of small-town America. At the time, it had around 500 residents, and even today, only about a 1,000. It's located in the southwestern corner of Arkansas in Miller County, just miles from the borders of Texas and Louisiana. It's a mere 15 miles southeast of the city of Texarkana, but it's definitely a world away tucked into the wooded, swampy countryside of the Sulphur River bottoms. The land surrounding Falk is a wild, rugged habitat, complete with swamps and a network of rivers and creeks that spread throughout the landscape like a web. This includes Boggy Creek, a small waterway that starts south of Falk and snakes its way to the west until it eventually merges into Days Creek and then into the Sulphur River. In the days following the attack at the Ford House, residents and onlookers alike speculated on the reality of a hairy creature living in the woods near Falk. But if they had any doubts as to the veracity of the claims, they were shattered when yet more witnesses came forward claiming to have seen a bizarre ape-like creature. On the night of May 24, 1971, Mr. and Miss D.C. Woods, Jr., and Miss R.H. Sedgas, all citizens of Texarkana, were traveling north on Highway 71 when they saw a large animal covered in dark hair run upright across the road in front of their car and disappear into the darkness beyond. The trio noted that it was swinging its arms as it ran and looked very much like a, quote, giant monkey. The incident occurred very close to Boggy Creek, where it crosses under Highway 71. Mr. Woods thought they were going to collide with the animal, but due to its unusually fast pace, it got across the road unharmed. The details were publicized in the Texarkana Gazette. 
bringing more attention and credibility to the case. The Fords were new to the area, so they were essentially outsiders. However, the new witnesses were very respected longtime residents. The group had recently read about the Ford incident, so they were aware of the alleged monster at the time and even stated that they thought it was just some kind of a hoax. But after what they saw on the night of May 24th, their minds were absolutely changed. In this second article, journalist Jim Powell dubbed the creature the Falk Monster, a name that it has since been known by, in addition to the aforementioned Boggy Creek Monster due to its apparent affinity for traveling along that small, lonely creek. On the evening of June 2nd, Police responded to a call from three individuals claiming they had seen a tall, hairy creature with red eyes closer to Texarkana. According to one of the witnesses, Gloria Dean Ritchie, they spotted the creature squatting on an embankment across the street from her residence after hearing something walk through a wooded area near the road. In her own words, We shined a flashlight on the spot and saw the creature. He was real tall and hairy and had red eyes. When the light hit the thing, the dogs began to bark. At that point, it started running through the heavy brush, leaping high over the weeds and running faster than a man could. Police searched the wooded area around the house shortly after receiving the call, but came up empty-handed. Falk Monster Mania hit a fevered pitch when a farmer discovered some strange footprints in a soybean field on the morning of Sunday, June 13th. The tracks originated from the woods at one corner of the field and traveled about 150 yards before disappearing into the trees on the other side. The trackway appeared to have been made by a bipedal creature walking upright. The footprints measured 13 and a half inches long by four and a half inches wide, with a maximum stride of 57 inches between them. The animal appeared to have three toes, all about the same length. Another, smaller toe imprint was observed about five inches back from the big toe, but this digit only made a faint indention in the sandy soil. Law enforcement and game officials were called to the scene that morning, including Constable Ernest Walraven, Miller County Sheriff Leslie Greer, Deputy H.L. Phillips, and Game Warden Carl Galen. Local residents Smokey Crabtree and Willie Smith, who actually owned the land, also converged on the scene along with two representatives from the press. The men had varying opinions on the origin of the tracks, but could agree on one thing. They were strange and unlike any animal known to the area, if they were those of an animal. They noted that the tracks resembled the ones found around the Ford house. Something strange was indeed happening in the small town of Falk. The story of the tracks was published in the June 15th edition of the Texarkana Gazette, taking up the better part of a page that featured a large photo of a single track and the headline, Monster Tracks Found. A day later, Falk residents Al Williams and A.L. Tipton 
observed an ape-like animal, quote, slouch across a gravel road in front of their car. The road ran two miles south of Falk, only a quarter mile from Smith's soybean field where the tracks were previously found. They were close enough to see that the creature was either an ape or large monkey. Tipton stated that it appeared to be about three or four feet tall as it walked across the road. Although the height estimation seemed at odds with the seven-foot range, it reinforced the theory that some kind of ape-like creature may be living in the area. And if it was a real animal, then it likely had offspring, which could explain this creature's smaller stature. The men reported the sighting to Sheriff Leslie Greer. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As the story circulated in the news, other locals came forward to explain that this wasn't the first time a mysterious ape-like creature had been seen in the area. In fact, there had been a rash of sightings over the last five years near the small community of Jonesville, located about five miles south of Falk, along the Sulphur River. These encounters had never been made public outside of family and friends, and certainly not printed in the paper, so the information was not common knowledge beyond the vicinity of Falk. There had been so many significant sightings that the creature was known as the Jonesville Monster among the residents. As news of the May 1971 incidents captured the headlines, the old stories began to make their way into the articles. One of the main sources of these stories was longtime Falk resident Willie Smith. Smith, who operated a small service station in town, also owned a big portion of land just outside of Falk's main street. The property was flanked by heavy woods and was intersected by Boggy Creek. This is where the mysterious trackway was found on June 13th. According to Smith, he saw the alleged creature on two occasions near his home around 1955. The first time, the creature was lurking along the creek. He shot at it with a rifle, but the thing escaped unharmed into the woods. Smith said the creature returned a short time later, this time harassing his dog. Once again, Smith grabbed his rifle and attempted to shoot it, but again he missed, and the creature ran into the woods. Smith said that one year earlier, a woman and her two children who lived in an isolated farmhouse about two miles from town saw a large, hairy creature in their field. The woman promptly sent her son to fetch the landlord, but he lived over two miles away, and the boy had to run there on foot. By the time the landlord came to investigate the following morning, the strange visitor was gone. 
Sometime around 1955, Jonesville resident James Crabtree saw what he described as a large gorilla-like creature along the banks of the Sulphur River. Crabtree said he was floating down the river checking his trot lines when he saw the thing sitting on the muddy bank. It appeared to be washing its feet in the water. Crabtree tried to ease up on it in his boat, but it stood up and walked off on two legs. He later told family members, saying he was positive it wasn't a bear. Several significant sightings had occurred in the 1960s. In 1964, the creature was seen around the Searcy home in Jonesville at the edge of the Sulphur River. Mary Beth Searcy, a teenager at the time, was spending a night at home with her mother, older sister, and baby niece while her brother and father were spending the night elsewhere. When the other women went to bed early with the baby, Mary Beth decided to study for school. As the spring air cooled with the deepening night, Mary Beth's sister asked her to cover the bedroom window to prevent the baby from becoming ill. Mary Beth grabbed a blanket and approached the window. As she was covering it, she glanced into the yard. There was enough moonlight to see the immediate area between the house and the outlying trees. She was shocked to see a large, hairy creature emerging from the woods. It walked on two legs as though it were a human. She screamed and ran from the window as the other two women bolted awake. They spent the rest of that night in sleepless terror. The incident haunted Mary Beth the rest of her life. This is her actual statement from a TV news segment that aired on KTBS Channel 3 out of Shreveport in 1992. People stop talking. Because people laugh at you. They, they ask you about it, you know, like they're really serious, and they laugh at you. Oh, you don't, you don't believe that. Do you expect us to believe it? So if I expect them to believe it, I wouldn't tell them. But you know it's real, as far as you're concerned. I saw it. A year later, Lynn Crabtree, whose family lived a short distance from the Circes in the heavily wooded area, experienced one of the most horrifying encounters ever reported around Falk. Lynn was hunting squirrels on his family's property near their small lake one evening when he sat down under a tall acorn tree. Suddenly, he heard the sound of horses running down a nearby logging trail. They eventually splashed into the waters of the lake, which was about 75 yards away. The horses belonged to one of the neighbors and often ran wild through the woods, so this was nothing out of the ordinary. About the time the horses hit the water, however, a dog began to bellow in pain. The sound was coming from somewhere near the lake. Lynn thought it might be one of their own dogs, perhaps hung up in a fence, so he got up and began to head in that direction. He was about halfway to the lake when the dog's bellow changed to some kind of deep grunt or groan. Lynn had never heard anything like it, so he stopped a moment to listen. As he focused on the noise, he realized it was not coming from the dog, but instead from some kind of big animal he was not familiar with. Lynn walked forward to a clearing where he could get a better look. As soon as he cleared the trees and the lake was in view, he saw some kind of hairy animal standing near the water with its back to him, no more than 30 feet away. 
The thing was watching the horses and moving in such a way that gave Lynn the impression that it was angry. The young hunter stood silent as he observed the creature, which appeared to be some type of, quote, hairy man or gorilla-type beast with very long arms. Lynn realized it had been the reason the horses fled for the safety of the lake. The beast, which was moving its head and shoulders in an agitated manner, suddenly turned and looked directly at Lynn. The boy trembled. The thing's face was obscured by hair, with only a dark brown nose showing flat and close to the face. Thinking it must surely be a man, Lynn raised his gun in an attempt to frighten him off. He only had squirrel shot in his rifle, but it would be threatening enough. The bizarre manimal paid no heed to the firearm and started walking toward the boy. Lynn shouted a warning before he fired off a round. He aimed for the head, but the beast seemed totally unaffected as it continued to advance. Lynn shot off two more rounds before finally fleeing in panic towards the Crabtree home. When he reached the house, he frantically told his mother and father what he had seen. They had visitors that night, so his parents were not the only ones who heard Lynn's story. Lynn's father, a man named Julius Crabtree, who went by the nickname Smokey, was a very skilled outdoorsman and a prominent member of the Falk community. When Smokey heard the details of his son's bizarre encounter, he promptly went to the location himself, but found no trace of the creature or wild man or whatever it was. As time went on, Smokey attempted to track down the creature in an effort to not only see it for himself, but to prove to a skeptical community that his son had not made up the story. In the months after his son's encounter, Smokey organized hunts with other men who lived nearby in an attempt to flush the thing out. They often heard its eerie howl pierce the darkness of the woods, but could never quite track it down. In the coming years, Smokey would play a significant role in the continuing saga of this Falk monster. Another man who would play what is arguably the most significant role in the creature's story was Charles B. Pierce. Pierce, a Texarkana resident who had worked in graphic design, writing, singing, acting, and television commercial production, had been reading the sensational headlines in 1971 along with so many others in the region. Pierce had recently approached his wealthy client, Buddy Ledwell, owner of Ledwell Trucking, to loan him money to make a film, which he first intended to be a western. However, his mind was apparently changed when he was visiting Hollywood to do some casting. According to an interview with Alex Ben Block from the Miami News, Pierce said he was in Hollywood when two teenagers passed him on the street wearing Save the Falk Monster t-shirts. At that point, he realized he should actually be making a movie about the creature that was roaming the swampy bottomlands only a few miles from his home instead of a western. Pierce quickly returned to Arkansas and prepared to create a movie based on the monster sensation. For funding, he once again approached Mr. Ledwell, who agreed to loan him $100,000. 
For help with a screenplay, Pierce enlisted an advertising associate by the name of Earl E. Smith, who also lived in Texarkana. Smith had never written a movie script, but he was more than willing to give it a try. Smith began making trips to Falk to interview the local townsfolk and witnesses as part of his research. Meanwhile, Pierce borrowed a technoscope camera from a friend and taught himself to use it. Operating under the working title Tracking the Falk Monster, and with a rough script in hand, Pierce and Smith went to Falk and approached the most interesting people whom Smith had interviewed previously and asked if they would be willing to share their experiences on film. They intended to use a documentary-style approach so it would not require much in the way of rehearsed dialogue or actual actors. Many of the witnesses and townsfolk were hesitant to share their stories for a movie, but when Pierce assured them that it would not be a horror film and the subject matter would be treated honestly and objectively, some of them agreed. Still others declined, as they viewed Pierce as an outsider who may or may not have their best interests at heart. This was a small town, and even though their titular creature had been making headlines, they did not necessarily welcome the attention. Regardless, Pierce had enough cooperation to proceed, and despite the town's reservations, he truly did want to stick to the facts. The story was sensational enough that if he simply told it in an effective way, it would be sincere and haunting, just as it was in real life. One local that Pierce and Smith spoke to was Smokey Crabtree, whose son Lynn had come face to face with the monster by that point six years earlier. While talking to Smokey, Pierce persuaded him to act as sort of a tour guide around town and in the swamps. This was a fortunate move as Smokey's lifelong experience in the bottoms was helpful in accessing remote locations for filming. In some cases, Smokey also functioned as an informal liaison between the movie makers and the townsfolk, convincing locals to participate in the movie, especially those who claimed to have seen the monster and had first-hand stories to tell. Pierce also resorted to some crafty, low-budget ingenuity to cast the rest of the parts. He simply hung out at a local gas station and waited for people to drop by. When he spotted someone that fit the description of a person he needed, he would simply ask them if they wanted to be in a movie. To round out the cast and crew, Pierce enlisted the help of some local actors and students from the college. The creature itself would remain shadowy in most of the film, but would require some kind of costume. To accomplish this on a tight budget, Pierce ordered a gorilla suit from a costume house in Los Angeles, and then modified it by adding long wig hair he bought at a local five-and-dime store. The film itself took four months to complete, as Pierce had to overcome many obstacles and work with a crew that had virtually no experience with movie making. But in the end, he got it done and he felt good about what he had captured on film. For the soundtrack, Pierce worked out a deal with the Bolivian-American composer Jaime Mendoza Nava, who had done work on a long list of previous indie films, including the unique occult cryptid movie Equinox. 
Tom Boutros, who had cut the horror film The Hideous Sun Demon, was hired to do the editing. Once the dialogue, soundtrack, and finished reels were in hand, Pierce commissioned the very talented graphic artist and painter Ralph McQuarrie to create the iconic one-sheet movie poster. For those that aren't familiar with McQuarrie, he was the artist who worked with George Lucas to bring to life the iconic Star Wars characters as Lucas shopped his screenplay to Hollywood Studios. McQuarrie's paintings of characters such as Darth Vader and Chewbacca were instrumental in selling the movie to Hollywood producers. The resulting movie poster for Pierce's film became just as iconic. The movie, now titled The Legend of Boggy Creek, premiered on August 18, 1972 at the Paramount Theater in Texarkana to a full house. The regional interest in the Falk monster translated to immediate interest in the film and lines formed around the block for subsequent showings. Since Pierce did not have a distribution deal in place, he rented the theater, sold tickets, and operated independently. The process was called four-walling. But despite the limitations and the film's surprising G rating, it was a huge hit with everyone. Moviegoers of all ages would scream, hide their eyes, and often run from the theater in fright when it was over. This only fueled the anticipation as everyone who was waiting in line for the next showing witnessed the chaos. It was so successful, Pierce obtained a second print of the movie, rented a theater in Shreveport, Louisiana, and began showing it there as well. It was the same result with lines around the block. At that point, Pierce was on his way to becoming an extremely successful independent filmmaker, while the legend of Boggy Creek and the story of the Falk Monster was growing larger with each showing. At a time in the 1970s when interest in Bigfoot was at an all-time high and the media did not have such a cynical view of the unexplained, the timing could not have been better for the legend of Boggy Creek. The film was eventually picked up by Halco International and distributed to theaters and drive-ins all across the country, making it one of the most successful films of the year, beating out many Hollywood movies in terms of revenue. As a result of the publicity, people began to descend on Falk. They drove hundreds of miles in hopes of either spotting the monster, having a look at the houses shown in the movie, or worse, to actually hunt the monster. People would park as near as they could to Boggy Creek so they could hunt or even camp overnight along its spooky banks. The situation was so out of hand that the Miller County Sheriff's Office had to ban people from taking guns into the woods to look for the monster, except during deer season, to reduce the risk of someone shooting a person by mistake. Letters also began to pour into the town's tiny post office, at one point, the Falk mayor's office had a bundle of nearly 800 letters which inquired about monster hunting or were addressed to the Falk monster itself. Some local businesses managed to capitalize on the frenzy by offering souvenirs or menu items based on the monster, but for the most part, the little town of Falk did not realize what had hit them. The success achieved by the film was remarkable but not completely surprising to Pierce, who knew he had something special judging from its premiere at the old Texarkana Theater. 
After Halco International finally joined in, the film went on to gross more than $25 million throughout the 1970s. The movie enjoyed a long stint in theaters and drive-ins and a subsequent run on television. Thousands upon thousands of people saw the movie, which brought the tale of the Falk monster to people well beyond Falk and even internationally. It was a true sensation, much like the movie's subject matter. It may have seemed like a wild story to some, a tall tale, if you will, but what is shown in the film is based on real reports by real people, people who lived and thrived in the rugged expanse of rural Arkansas, a people who well knew the difference between a bear or a panther and a bizarre ape-like creature that could walk upright. Charles Pierce and Earl Smith did their best to represent their stories accurately and truthfully, and they knew if they did, the movie would be entertaining and frightening without exaggeration. The tale of the Beast of Boggy Creek was exciting enough without having to distort it. The resulting movie is therefore just as much a documentary as it is a classic example of independent horror cinema. The scenes still resonate. The legend of Boggy Creek eventually played out and things got quiet again in Falk. Even the news media became disinterested, only running the occasional recap around Halloween. Casual followers of the story tend to believe the creature sightings ceased around that time in the mid to late 1970s. However, that simply wasn't the case. In the shadows, the creature still roamed. In the years that followed, far away from the limelight of movie theaters, witnesses would continue to encounter the creature, and in some cases, these encounters would be even more terrifying than those highlighted in the legendary movie. The legend of the Beast of Boggy Creek it seems, was only just beginning. Join me on the next episode of Monstro Bizarro for the exciting conclusion of The Beast of Boggy Creek. Special thanks to Pam Pierce Barcelo for permission to use clips from The Legend of Boggy Creek. Be sure to check out the restored, remastered version available now on Blu-ray and DVD at legendofboggycreek.com. For more information about me or my Boggy Creek books, visit lyleblackburn.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.